Good morning. Good morning, church. Um, am, I, am I live? Are we live? Oh, okay, great. <laughs> Good. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, my name is Jamie, and um, before we start, I'd like to apologize for something. Um, last week, um, we actually had communion available, and, um, and Jim and I both forgot, like completely and totally forgot, and so I'm so sorry um, about that. Uh, if you really needed that last week and you were denied that because of our scattered brains, please forgive us. Um, we are having communion today. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, let's pray. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your peace. Will you help us to hear your truth today? Uh, your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. So we have started a new church year. Okay, right? It's Advent. It's the second Sunday, like Liz said. And Advent, in case you don't know, it's a Latin word for coming or arrival. Um, but it comes from a Greek word, parousia. And uh, the Greek word is way better because it's more specific. Okay, parousia isn't just any arrival. It's specifically the arrival of an emperor or a king or royal entourage, right? Isn't that better? Yeah. So Advent is the four weeks before Christmas, and it's a season, um, like Liz was saying, where we, the church, are encouraged to reflect on uh, Jesus' coming, well, his first coming, his incarnation, and then to anticipate his second coming, too, right? And God's people were waiting for the Messiah to come and redeem them, and we, too, get to participate in that kind of waiting, right, that kind of longing. And it's hard to wait, right? We're not usually good at it. Um, so we use this time to contemplate the hope, okay, the hope of the coming of our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords, and uh, to practice waiting well, right? And we practice holding the tension of the now and not yet, but soon. Okay, and in the collect this morning, you know, we acknowledge that God sent his prophets to instruct us and to preach repentance and to warn us to forsake our sins, right? So while we wait for Jesus... Um, to return, right? We need to be doing this. Um, it was a good prayer. It was a really good prayer. It was a good reminder that God hasn't left us, like, with nothing while we wait. So our gospel reading for today comes from Matthew. And, uh, you know, like I said, it's a new church year. So uh, this year, the lectionary reads through Matthew's gospel, right? Last year, it was Luke. And um, one of the themes that runs through Matthew's gospel is this theme of connecting the old with the new. And he tells the story of Jesus, the Messiah, in ways that honor the Jewish scriptures and heritage and then connects it with the, the new church that was forming, you know, that wasn't exclusively for Jews, but it was now opened up to the Gentiles too. 
Um, so today's reading has that old and new quality to it. It's Matthew 3, uh, 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So let's pause here for a moment. Okay, you can already see the old and the new being connected. The author introduces the prophet, John, and he shows us a picture. He paints a picture of John the Baptist as like an old-fashioned kind of prophet. And, um, and he's described much like Elijah, right? Our Bible reading group just read through Second Kings. And um, in it, Elijah is described uh, as a hairy man wearing a leather belt. And I'm not sure what's so interesting about leather belts, but the Bible really does use it to kind of point to other people like that, right? Like, I never defined someone by their leather belt, you know? Like, well, what did she look like, you know? Well, she's wearing a leather belt. Does that help? <laughs> did she have hair? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I will notice the belt, like if it's one of those cowboy belts, right, with a big shiny belt buckle. Um, those were kind of popular when I was in high school in the mid-90s because I went to a hick school, right? And... Uh, at the <laughs> <laughs> I do have a bandana on. <laughs> Don't forget, when I point the finger, there's three pointing right back at me. <laughs> um, I don't see those belts anymore. <laughs> anyway, listen, Matthew's Gospel uh, uses hair and a leather belt to get our attention, right, that John is a type of old school prophet. Plus, Matthew just like flat tells us that John is the one that Isaiah was prophesying about, right? He says, Isaiah told us he would come. It's this guy, right? He even dresses the part. And he lives out in the wilderness, like old school. He doesn't describe his diet because it's an interesting diet, okay? Um, his, his diet shows us that John doesn't have a steady home. Okay, it's not like he lives out in the wilderness and he's built like a homestead farm out there. Um, he's just, he's wandering and he's eating whatever, whatever comes his way. So Matthew is legitimizing this new prophet by connecting him to the old, right? He looks like Elijah. And, um, and this is the one Isaiah told us about. So he's from God, and you can trust that what he says is God's word to us. So what does John say to them and to us? He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's the gospel message. It's really good news, and you can trust it because it's come from God. And what else is John doing? He's doing 
a new thing, okay? He's baptizing the people who come to him in the river. And the people are confessing their sins. And since Matthew has legitimized this new prophet, you can trust that what he's doing, this new thing, is from God. Now, this new prophet with this gospel message is getting very, very popular, okay? And he's influencing a lot of people, uh, so much so that the religious leaders, they take notice and they go to check out what's going on. It's verse 7. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is now in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Happy Advent, everyone. <laughs> Advent's a season of hope. <laughs> so when the leaders show up to participate in this new baptism, John doesn't seem to treat them the same way that he was treating the regular folks, right? The crowds are coming because they're hearing good news. And they're confessing their sins. And they're repenting. And they're being unburdened. But the leaders he treats differently. First, he cordially greets them by calling them snakes. But he's getting their attention, right? Like, that would do it for me. Someone called me a snake. It would definitely get my attention. I'm not sure I would hear what they said next. <laughs> we find out later on in this gospel that the leaders haven't been doing their jobs very well. You know, in chapter 23... Jesus accuses the leaders of, you know, not practicing what they teach and that they're putting burdens on the people and they're not helping them. And he says they lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. He just really gives them the business. But in chapter 3, John doesn't give them a litany of woes about their comings and goings, right? He just shorthands it with calling them snakes. They've been despicable. And then he does what prophets do. He gives them a warning, and he encourages them to repent, right? The gospel is for them, too, right? If you hear nothing else today. So he's warning them and us that judgment is imminent. No one's going to get out of this, okay? Jewish or not, your salvation doesn't come from Father Abraham. It comes from the Lord. And then he preaches them repentance. Produce fruit worthy of repentance. And repentance isn't new. This isn't one of the new things that John is doing. Okay, Moses taught repentance. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses taught, you will repent, turn to the Lord your God, and obey him. 
right? And in chapter 30, Moses tells the people, return to the Lord your God, repent, and you and your children obey him with all your heart, with all your soul, just as I am commanding you today. Then the Lord your God will return you from captivity and have compassion on you, right? This isn't new, but it is a warning, and it is the gospel, And then John continues his prophecies. Like, if you're impressed by me and what I'm doing, like, just wait. There's a powerful one coming, okay? And he baptizes with spirit and fire. And his purification method is God's own fiery breath. It will either purify you for or purge you from his presence. So the warning and the gospel prepare the way for Jesus. And I think that's the same for us as we long and wait for Jesus to return. So let's take a few minutes here to look at the axe that's lying at the root of the trees, right? Where we are in our time and place so that we can be prepared and repent and bear good fruit. So lately, I have noticed, and you have noticed, that Christians in the United States have picked up a really bad habit of confusing America with the church, right? And they want America to look like the church or act like the church or govern like the church, and this isn't right. No country is supposed to be the church, and the church is not a country, right? It's not a government or a geographical location. It's not an ethnicity or a race. Because those words draw lines. They draw borders around people. And the church is an open table, right? What does Paul say? Like, neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, right? For you are one in Christ Jesus. The church is the bride of Christ, not America. And when you start to blur the lines between the church and anything else, you cheapen Christ's bride. Now, if you've been doing that, if you've tangled up the church with America or any other thing, I have good news for you. You can choose to give that up. You can repent, turn to the Lord your God, and obey him. Listen, patriotism is good, okay? It is good to have a healthy love for your homeland, your country. Now, as with anything that you love, you can take it too far, okay? You can make your country an idol. You can make anything into an idol. You can make the Bible into an idol. But a healthy love of country and place and people is wonderful. A healthy, ordered love lets you celebrate your country's accomplishments, and it allows you to be honest about her flaws, okay, and to want her to do better. Like, that's true of any healthy, real relationship. And Jesus tells us that the most important commandments are love your God with all your heart and mind and soul, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
He says that. And then he goes on to tell a parable about the Good Samaritan, right? And it's a story that shows a love of neighbor that goes beyond local boundaries. Do you remember? A Samaritan shows agape love to a wounded Jew. So if our patriotism prevents us from showing agape love, and what is agape love? (laughs) Hold on. C.S. Lewis defines it as a selfless love that is passionately committed to the well-being of others. That definition cuts me in half every time I read it. So if our patriotism prevents us from having a selfless love that is passionately committed to the well-being of others, then our patriotism is sick. It is perverted. Agape love allows us to love bigger and better, okay? We start in our home, and it builds out to the neighborhood. And we love our hood, right? And then to our community, and then to city, and other cities, and then your state. And Okay, you see the circles I'm drawing here. And it doesn't stop at our nation's border, okay? That kind of love means we want other people to have this love of their neighbor and of their homeland, okay? Our patriotism should not stop us from wanting other people in other countries to have a healthy love for their own countries, right? We should want them to celebrate their accomplishments and to be honest about their flaws and want to do better. Now here is where it gets tricky, okay? Nationalism is a word that keeps coming up. And people sometimes use it wrongly. You know, they think that it means patriotism. But we already have a word for patriotism. It's patriotism. And nationalism has a definition that's way over 100 years old. I'm going to tell you a definition for it that I got out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And it's a, it's a bit of a tangle. I'm so sorry. So nationalism is an ideology that emphasizes loyalty or allegiance to a nation or nation state and holds that such obligations, the allegiance, outweigh the other individuals or group interests. Okay, that doesn't sound too bad. It just sounds like they're demanding loyalty. But is actually chauvinism. And it's selfish and self-interested. It isn't a love of country. Okay, so where patriotism is based on love, nationalism is based on fear and pride. But how about an example of nationalism to kind of maybe concrete this a bit? Let's look at white nationalism. (laughs) Right, let's go for an extreme example of this. These folks believe that since the United States was founded by white Anglo-Saxons, that that is America's true, real heritage. And that white Anglo-Saxon Americans are the only true, real Americans. And everyone else is less American and must conform to the white Anglo-Saxon American way. Obviously, that's gross. So you can see that nationalism creates a hierarchy. Okay, and in America, there's not supposed to be a hierarchy, right? It's, it's liberty and justice for all, 
It's not liberty and justice for white people first, and then whatever's left over, we will give to the second-class Americans. Right. So white nationalism is a version of white supremacy. There is no agape love in that. It is wrong. So nationalism values culture and religion and heritage and ethnicity of one group over and above all the other groups within that nation. You guys see where I'm going with this, right? And if America values equal rights and freedom of religion and liberty and justice for all, then you can see that any kind of nationalism is not American. Okay. So I'm explaining all of this because Christian nationalism is a thing that keeps popping up. And it's being used by the political realm, okay, but it's starting to creep into the church. And the words themselves, they sound like it means a patriotic Christian. Okay, and maybe some people even mean it that way when they say it. But the thing is, we already have a word for patriotism. So we can't, it would, it's not good to get these two words twisted. Being a patriotic Christian is good. Okay, remember, it's actually practicing loving our neighbor. Being a Christian nationalist isn't loving. It's based on fear and pride. And it means you want your Christian values, your Christian culture, your Christian beliefs, your Christian heritage imposed on others. And it creates a hierarchy that says Christianity is the real American way and all others are second-class citizens. And that is neither American nor Christian. In Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples into the surrounding areas to preach the gospel, right? And in Luke 10, he sends out like 72 of them. And now does he tell them to impose their beliefs and teachings on the towns? No, never. The gospel is an invitation. It is not an imposition. Jesus tells us to invite folks into the gospel in peace, right? And he says if they reject your peace, then you take it back and you move on. And the gospel doesn't participate in hierarchy. When Jesus' very own disciples tried to create hierarchy within, you know, by asking uh, to sit by his side, you know, or when they ask him who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus doesn't participate in that. He doesn't make a hierarchy, right? He says, oh, yeah, the lowest is the greatest. How are you going to build a hierarchy on that? And then he says, like, don't be like the Gentiles who lord authority over each other, right? It is not so with you. It is not so with us. So if you've been tricked into thinking, well, okay, if you've been tricked into thinking that white supremacy is good or that Christianity is a thing to be used to rule and control people, I have gospel for you. You can choose to let go of those prideful things and you can humble yourself and repent and turn back to the Lord your God and obey him. That ends the American civics portion of the sermon. Thank the Lord. Now, John the Baptist was preparing the way uh, for the Messiah by preaching the gospel and by calling out the leaders for not living what they were teaching. And he says they're producing bad fruit. Now, here's the thing. Whether they were doing this 
out of ignorance, right, the, what we've always done it this way, or, well, no one ever told me to do it another way, or out of their hard hearts, like the result is still bad fruit. So this is true for us as well. Like, we can't live in ignorance or hard-heartedness because uh, it still yields the same result, right? So as we wait and long for Jesus to return, we need to make sure that we are preparing our hearts so that we don't live from a place of ignorance or hard-heartedness. And so I want to look at one more source of, of bad fruit, right? I want to examine it and uh, reject it. And it's a teaching that most churches reject, okay? But it, it is taking hold in some evangelical charismatic churches, okay? And it's called uh, dominion or dominionism theology. And in a nutshell, these folks teach that uh, because of that one verse in Genesis, uh, Genesis 1.28, after God creates man and woman, he blesses them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. So they take that verse and they take it so far that they teach that Christians must take back dominion from Satan on this world and that um, establishing a global Christian theocracy is the only way to prepare the world for Jesus to return. It's like Christian nationalism on steroids, like on 10 steroids. And when it's presented like that, you can see why most Christian churches would reject that teaching, um, because that's not what Jesus taught. It's anti-gospel, right? This teaching isn't an invitation to the gospel. It's an imposition. It's about gaining power and control of the world. And it is a false teaching. But it makes its way into charismatic circles because they don't present it that way. They don't present it as an earthly power grab, but instead they appeal to our love of spiritual things like intercession, right? Or maybe they model it like spiritual warfare. So they don't say things like, hey, we need your help to take over the world so Jesus can come back. Because you would say, like, no, thank you. But what they say is, you know, like, won't you help us pray against the powers and principalities of such and such territory so that we can um, help take it over, right? So that we can do good there. And, um, and they have a word for it. They call it spiritual mapping, okay? But what I want you to know is that it is warfare for the sake of warfare, okay? It's warfare for the sake of gaining power, Let's talk about this for a second, okay? We do believe that sometimes it is appropriate to engage in spiritual warfare, okay? Especially if someone is demonized, it would be cruel to leave them in that state. And Jesus taught his disciples to cast out demons. And that kind of spiritual warfare comes from a heart of love and compassion for people, okay? It doesn't come from a prideful heart that seeks power. And intercession is wonderful, okay, guys? I'm an intercessor. Like, before I am preaching, I am an intercessor. It is good 
and loving to pray on behalf of people and places, but not when it is to gain power over them. If that is your goal, then you have ceased intercession and have just participated in witchcraft. And it doesn't matter if you think you're doing it for a good reason. We kind of addressed this a couple of months ago, uh, right? I preached from Jeremiah 29. Uh, do you remember um, Jeremiah? God tells the exiles how to live in Babylon, right? They are no longer in their homeland. They are in Babylon. And how does God tell them to live? He doesn't tell them to plan a spiritual insurrection or a spiritual takedown. And he doesn't tell them to assimilate to the Babylonian culture and worship their gods either. He tells them to live the good life, build houses, have big families, and plant gardens, and pray shalom, peace and well-being for the city. He tells them to be who you were created to be in this place. It's not a grab for power. It is shalom. And dominionism is short on shalom. And the other way it tries to appeal to us is through something that it calls the Seven Mountains Mandate. And um, this idea they have, it says there's seven mountains or pillars of society that Christians need to infiltrate and control. Dead giveaway. And the seven mountains, okay, they've listed as government and education, media, arts and entertainment, religion, family, and business. And I'm not sure how or why, but they've left out the medical field in that. I don't, maybe they count it as business, but I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not trying to help them. Um, now, it is good for Christians to work, okay, and, uh, and to work in, in these um, places, Right? But we're supposed to be who we're created to be and, and work and do it with agape love and shalom. Okay? But the dominionists, they tell us uh, that Christians need to infiltrate these sectors and take control because God needs us to take over these parts of society so that Christians can um, take over the world so Jesus can come back. And they do this, they use a couple of verses from Isaiah, like two verses from Isaiah and a chapter from Revelation as their proof text for this. So, um, you know, we have a verse from Genesis, we have two from Isaiah and then a chapter of Revelation. And that is how big their Bible is. Okay, so if you're ever wondering if a teaching is good or, um, you know, if a theology is good, you can tell by how big the Bible is. Um, if they're using the whole story or just picking out a few pieces of it. And, um, and as you can see, there's no gospel in this, right? In fact, they seem to ignore Jesus and his teachings altogether. When Jesus ascended to heaven and gave instructions for his followers, what did he say? You guys remember? Did he say, go therefore into all the nations and get jobs so you can infiltrate the world governments and economies so I can come back sooner? Not at all. He says to go make disciples. He says to teach. And he says to baptize the people, right? There's no spiritual military coup. 
And it's sad to me that charismatic Christians will fall for these teachings, you know. Um, And we fall for it because it appeals to our spirituality and our want of purpose. Those aren't bad things, right? It's not bad to want purpose, right? And they present it to us like, well, you can be a good and useful Christian if you do these things. But the truth is the Lord has already called us and filled us with purpose, you know, to live a beatitude life and to share the gospel and to love our neighbor and lots of other really wonderful things. And all of those things have to do with love and humbleness and compassion and never with pride or fear or control or power. The dominionist theology is anti-gospel and it seems to imply that Jesus' victory on the cross was not enough or that it was incomplete and that we have to control the world to give him his total victory. Imagine spitting in God's face like that. But here's the thing. If you've bought into that theology, or if you practice it, and if you're more interested in purpose that gains you power, rather than purpose that might cost you something, and if you're more interested in spiritual warfare than loving your neighbor, I have good news. You can choose to let go of that, and you can repent, and turn back to the Lord your God, and obey him. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus with a warning and the gospel. And we can prepare our hearts for Jesus' return with the same warning and the same gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Judgment is imminent. And no one is going to get out of it. And the gospel has good news for us. We can let go of our pride and our love of power, all of it. And we can choose to humble ourselves and repent, right? Turn back to the Lord our God and obey him. And then he will purify us and gather us to him. It is such good news. I'm going to close now with a blessing, okay? Uh, I think we need a blessing. And I stole it from St. Paul. It's from uh, chapter 15 of Romans. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Jesus Christ, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.